Hello, humans, and welcome to another episode of Tending Trauma with me, your host, Thomas Weber. Today, we are joined by Kathy O'Bear. Welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Would you take a moment to introduce yourself to the audience? I don't think I ever paid much attention to trauma before. I come out of higher ed, student services, um, probably since 87, full-time consulting around equity inclusion, evolving into social justice, evolving into racial justice, anti-racism. And so I'm realizing lately that as a white person doing this work, how, how do I support colleagues of color indigenous folks to do racial justice healing? And then the other side of that is particularly, how are we white folks hurt by racism? We don't experience racism and by buying into racist attitudes, supporting white privilege, dominant white supremacy culture, colluding, we actually are deeply hurt by that and there are a lot of costs. So as I think about trauma or at least the healing process, that's a bit about me is really supporting whites and white accountability groups or anti-racism training, really seeing what our part is so we can partner with by the leadership of folks of color, indigenous folks, to truly help organizations and this nation. Well, it's never said it wants to be anti-racist, but today more folks are saying that. So to help it really live into what yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. So that's a bit about me. No, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, um, I you know, on the, on the show, we're, we're always trying to understand, unpack, you know, like some of the deeper reasons for why these things come out. And I like what you said about how like there are some uh, there's some like pushback, you know, when you have like a, a, a mindset that, that does end up like being racist, that there, there can be some negative consequences. Very cool. And one doesn't have to be a conscious, intentional, hateful, motivated mm. person. Many folks, I think most white people think we're are well-intentioned, think we help, mm. whether it's the white savior coming in or let me help you pull yourselves by the bootstraps. So working with white people particularly to get, hmm, how have you absorbed those racist attitudes, whether you knew it or not, and this belief that this dominant culture we have in the US, which some people yeah. call white supremacy culture, is the right and only way. And so really mm. healing, unlearning, questioning. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm curious, like, on the on your journey on along the way like where have you been able to leverage your your skill your your intelligence into making making some of this shift it took me years actually i was just talking on the phone about how i'm late to the movement there's so many folks of color been writing about anti-racism for decades sure. and i was yeah. doing EDI, you know, equity, inclusion, diversity, race was a part of it, but it wasn't until two, two decades ago, got clear that I was, ex people were experiencing me. I knew I had racist attitudes, but I thought I was performing and faking it. Um, that folks of color started to call me out on racist behaviors, racist attitudes. And basically as one consulting firm said, hello, you want to stay a part of this, you need to start doing really deep work. And so luckily wow. some colleagues said, we're starting this institute, the Social Justice Training Institute. And so it's been a 
real powerful place for me to support others, but also learn a lot in especially white accountability groups because they'd be having folk of color, indigenous accountability groups or affinity groups. So to be able to really help people look at our privileged identities, how we collude, hmm. uh, how we get white privilege, to be able to talk honestly about um, ways we have participated in or at least said, you know, it's not my job, but we still get all this white privilege and kept moving up in organizations. So right. um, leaders today, especially since George Floyd's murder, mm. at least for the first six or so months have said, we want to be an anti-racist organization. And so have invested time and energy. All employees, white leaders, BIPOC folks, some affinity healing empowerment space. I see that I'm hearing that white leaders are not staying into their commitment as much now that the national scene has apparently shifted a bit. Yeah. All that to say, whether it's leadership development, team building, uh, truly anti-racism work, basic EDI, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion work with an anti-racist cut to it. All those places help organizations leaders, change agents be far more effective, really aligned with what they say they want, core values as well as organizational strategic goals. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense that, you know, there is some, you know, if you want to impact um, any kind of um, agency, then there has to be, usually there's some kind of like outside, um, you know, force coming in and like needing to make that change you know it's not necessarily something from internal from that that is like oh man i don't feel good about this how can we change it there has to be some kind of like force coming in and being like well we got to change now um i mean I'm, I'm curious like on your on your personal journey you said that you had to learn some of these things to to get with it like was that what what, what was the challenge in that well, painful. So just a few, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, some researchers called it internalized dominance. Other people mm. might just call it believing in white supremacy. Mm. So I had to get really honest and it took a while to realize that I still believed. And I, so one of my mentors did this whites, people of color, kind of privileged, marginalized groups that I still believe that white culture, white ways were better. And that I, as an individual white person was smarter and better than most, mm. if not all folks of color. And so I didn't, mm. I didn't realize how I just absorbed and then used kind of those white supremacist attitudes to then boost my own ego and my self-confidence. Cause I, uh. I think because I grew up as a female and lesbian in this system, mm-hmm. alcoholic family, you can find all kinds of reasons, just this huge hole of not good yeah. enough imposter syndrome. And so then this belief that actually I am smart and better compensate until I did that inner self-work talk about healing trauma, whether it was societal messages or family dynamics, had to really heal how I believed I wasn't good enough, had to be perfect in order to be seen or validated. And then just believing all these racist attitudes, which I had to first get over. That doesn't mean I'm racist. It's like I have racist attitudes and behaviors even to this day. I don't call people racist, but I had to go, wow, how how did I get that job? Was it really based on competence, demonstrated capacity, or was I given the benefit of the doubt, kind of the halo of extrovert, charming, white master. So I had, I have many privileged identities and to realize, yeah. huh, I've gotten access to coaching, sponsoring jobs, 
opportunities far more because of white privilege wow. uh, and at the um, exploitation and expense of folk of color and indigenous folks. So some of that work, I don't sound emotional as I say it, but to really sit in that reality the first time to begin yeah. to really question everything I was taught about history. I was a history major. Everything I was taught was probably perpetuating white supremacy as I'm learning more, particularly since George Floyd's murder and really looking at the through lines of how US first British colonization was built on racism, indigenous right. um, genocide and the belief of white supremacy. So all that to say, it's a lot. And <laughs> it's, it's not just one fire hose, it's several. And so when- yeah we're working with leaders or you're working in a white accountability group to really scaffold it to meet whites where they are and then mm -hmm. scaffold it to not stay swirling in guilt and shame and oh, I'm a horrible person. It's like, no, right. you taught this. So now let's unlearn it. Let's mm -hmm. learn more accurate information. And then here's skills, recognize racist microaggressions you've done in the moment. What could you do? How does white supremacy culture show up? And that's Tema Oaken's work and Ken's mm -hmm. Jones, it's not mine, but how do those, you know, perfectionism, right to comfort of white people, worship yeah. of the written word, objectivity, time is money, more is better. Any of that sound familiar to you, Thomas? <laughs> so Absolutely, yeah. Helping organizations that help me, wow, I've believed it, perpetuate it. How do you just over time shift practices, mm -hmm. policies, ways of engaging? And it's a lot of self-work. And that's where the mm -hmm. healing comes in, how we've been hurt by racism, in my, one of my books, I talk about how I sold my soul for white privilege. And when mm -hmm. I was writing it, I meant it at every part of my being that I've lost authentic relationships with folks of color and whites, um, mm. lost, I had to really not be me. And I had to fit into this very tight box of what organizations said you had to be in this white yeah. culture. Um, and then just to carry the realization and guilt and shame that I was perpetuating racist dynamics, particularly in my silence. Um, sitting with that, there are a lot of reasons that most white people think with some awareness would want to change and heal yeah. a lot of that racist training we got so that we show up full human beings in our energy, our essence, and partner with folks of color to truly create thriving environments and spaces for folk of color to do healing because the amount of racial trauma, generational, mm -hmm. their current life, and then in this moment, um, and how can we use our white privilege and other leadership privilege access to create spaces if folks of color want those on organizational time and not because they're deficit or they're not competent, but they're just trying to survive in a racist organization takes a long time for leaders to be able to acknowledge all of what I just said and do that yeah. deep self-work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely seen that as well. You know, I, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying matches the pattern that I've seen where there is this like internal tension that feels that, that can feel sometimes really, um, like there's a like there's an exit strategy to dealing with that tension by putting an externalized group below you, you know whether it's feminism or or not not feminism but like um, you know how 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 sexism was um, or yeah. or racism um, 
heterosexism, like classism, disability, right. oppression, anti-Semitism. We're better. We're smarter. These right. folks are deficit in their marginalized identities. We have to fix them, help them. They have to fit in, assimilate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it sounds like there's a, a lot missing from that by, by having that, um, that, that pattern, that process of, of coping with things by just saying, I'm going to put this external group down. You're avoiding dealing with a lot of the internal things that kind of set up that, that whole mentality. Yes. And I think most white folks, as I did, deal with the reality of racism, white supremacy culture with, hmm. I don't actively do it. I don't intentionally do anything. I'm a good individual. Yeah. I treat everybody politely and kindly. I don't see color, uh, meaning I don't intentionally have racist attitudes, but whether hmm. it's Dr. Robin DiAngelo's work or so many folks, Dr. Eben Kendi, I could keep going about what you're either colluding and supporting racist dynamics or you're intentionally actively anti-racist. Wow. Uh, and so sitting with all those feelings of guilt and shame, as I mentioned, um, are there unless mm. people are in the, this denial of, I don't do it, so therefore I'm not responsible. I know as a woman, as a lesbian, that's where I put my energy mm. when I was first, I don't know, 20s and 30s, trying to create a world different from my marginalized identities. And I consciously thought, Dismantling racism is people of color, indigenous folks' responsibility. Now I see so clearly it is actually white people's role to work with and work with other whites particularly, but work with folk of color, follow leadership direction of learning with, not teach me, but learning with, see all these books that I still need to keep reading. And then white people working with white people in these white accountability groups or leadership groups to do all of that skill development on learning I talked about. Because, mm. you know, folks of color, first of all, racialized trauma yeah. every day from racist interpersonal aggressions, the policies, practices, much mm. less the national. Um, before the Biden-Harris came in, yeah. it was, you know, I don't know, 50 a day. I lost track. Wow. Today, I still well, might have been more today. There's still a lot, but at least mm. I believe we have different leadership that is almost daily saying we're going to disrupt systemic racism. We're going to look at white supremacy issues. You have Garland saying, oh, yeah, we're going to be dismantling domestic white supremacist terrorists. So it's a different yeah. context, generally. Okay. But that doesn't mean any organizations made much change. Transformational, revolutionary change is what needs yeah. to happen. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious. So just to just to hear what you said, like it sounds like now we have more of a willingness to have an awareness to to track to you know identify what the racist behaviors are. But it sounds like there's still some challenge around like really really being able to process through it and understand it, and also like change from having it here's what i did and i still see a lot of white folks say they agree or mm. they're doing it mm. since george floyd's murder i mean that national well actually global moment i've heard many white people say that's when they got they got to do something different or the insurrection the white supremacist insurrection of january 6 where folks saw white folk particularly could no longer argue. Now there's still 20, mm -hmm. 30% maybe yeah. of the re white Republicans and actually some folk of color, but mo many white people said that moment I got the disproportionate 
racist ways that white pro quote protesters with guns who are storming Michigan governor and taken, they got treated differently than yeah. Black Lives Movement protesters, folks of color and white. Very true. Kenosha, Ryan, I forget his name, killed three, two people and wounded another or something like that. Mm. And he leaves with this big gun. So, and then a white police officer gives him water. I mean, so, and wow. then what they saw January 6th were eight, I just saw today, 800 people broke through the barriers into the Capitol screaming, hang Mike Spence, hang yep. Pelosi. And white officers were holding the door and letting them leave. So just, and then seeing how tanks, armored vehicles, police dogs, full riot gear, yeah. with peaceful Black Lives Matter protests. So in Phoenix, a colleague of mine says, the government there has arrested and charged Black Lives Matter protesters, peaceful protesters hmm. with anti-gang felony which mm. could put them. In. So it's still continuing. I got yeah. here because more people to your point, white people are like, this is wrong. I didn't see it before I see it now. Mm -hmm. Whether they have the level of resolve and commitment to do the self-work we're talking about, mm -hmm. that's where the healing comes from. Because what I did was I learned a little bit and now come into meetings and I just perpetuate dominating, talking over, thinking I'm right, moving to solutions. And folks of color are like, you're no different. You're just saying you want to be a part of anti-racism, but you're perpetuating huh. interpersonal dynamics that have us feeling mm. devalued, unheard. You again think you know the right answers. White people in these white accountability groups or leadership training, learning how to partner with, follow leadership of, and that it does, and you need all that self-work I was talking about, dismantling the internalized dominance, believing we're better, smarter. Yeah. That's my fear. And then it gets hard because it's not easy to be in mixed race groups for white people, many say. Sure. Because they're like, I want to be comfortable. And hearing about daily racist microaggressions, policies and practices that continue to perpetuate white privilege mm -hmm. at the exclusion uh, and detriment of folk of color, those are hard to hear, especially if those white leaders created those hiring practices. Yes. Whatever it might be. And so getting the resilience or the capacity to stay engaged in what whites would call difficult conversations. Yeah. Folks of color would say, I'm just being <laughs> as even toned as I can. I'm just <laughs> telling you the reality and we think yeah. you're attacking us. Right. So it's a lot of capacity building that we as whites that never have had to develop the capacity and resilience to talk about race and racism, white privilege, much less heal our, yeah. Our own ways we collude. Yeah, it sounds like something that's really ultimately subtle that is easy to um to hide, to avoid dealing with even. Yeah. And uh but in aggregate that there's like this widespread global impact. And uh yeah, I love what you were saying about how like when when you're like trying to get to talk about, you know, these people just basically saying like excuse me, sir, you've stepped on my toes, you know, kind of stuff that um, can be really hard to, to not take um, as criticism, not take and internalize and, and get defensive about. Key skill sets, because usually I did and many whites will say, well, I didn't mean it and think that makes it okay as opposed to. 
that whole intent <laughs> impact is such right. a critical concept yes. and skill set to say, I apologize. And my guess is this isn't the first time it's happened to you, or maybe the first time that mm. I've done the racist dynamic. I'm open mm. to hearing the impact. And so there's a, I believe, a scaffolded curriculum, skill development, and some folks of color and some white people are like, F that, we want change now. And yet, <laughs> yeah. in my experience, if you want white leaders and managers and supervisors mm-hmm. showing up in meetings, dismantling racism, engaging moments that have a racist impact, there is a huge skill development process. Okay. Um, and so there's, I mean, today, and you've probably seen it in your work, there's often a disconnect between folks external and internal to organizations who are more the activists change agents, often younger folk yeah. who have, have been, uh, have a different life experience than many of the folks who are boomers uh, and even whatever that next generation is. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Impatient, tired of talk, want action. Now the last five strategic plans have talked about recruiting differences, retention differences, changing practices. You've hardly done anything. Why should we trust you to do anything now? And so mm-hmm. working with leaders to make meaningful very fast but meaningful changes to hiring, yeah. promotion, performance management. I have colluded with folks that wanted to create organizational change, no longer doing it. Leap into training, leap into without saying, let's slow down. First, let's work with your leadership group. Mm-hmm. And second, what are the capacities, the anti-racism skills and capacities that you will require of all leaders, managers, and employees, yeah. eventually. right. And so identifying them and then changing all your practices, so all your hiring practices, onboarding, all your training and performance management are built in, not just what diversity activity did you do this year, hmm. but these are the 10 competencies that you will be held accountable to. Mm-hmm. Here are ways to learn them. Okay. But after eight or 10 months, if we don't see meaningful progress, we'll have a conversation about, is this a place for you? That's mm. the conversation I'm having with senior leaders okay. and in places like this, yeah. because I will no longer collude with organizations, crisis, lots of training, mm-hmm. go back to complacency and no real change. I see. Yeah. I, 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 it makes sense. Like what you're trying to do is like, you know, there's there's like a, a, a broader cultural norm that is like kind of feeding these smaller cultural systems like in a workplace. And it sounds like you're really being practical when it comes to, okay, the, the change is gonna happen. It needs to happen in layers. There's gonna be mm-hmm. leadership and then like some em- layers of implementation and skill and also like, or like, you know, uh, mindset orientation that's gonna feed into the rest of the organization. Um, you, you mentioned like these 10 different factors, like, is there like a, a, a summary or like a, a basic concept to. So folks are like, I already, I want to know more, or I already do some of this work on my Mm -hmm. website. There's a lot of free resources. So it's Dr. Kathy O'Bear. So Mm -hmm. Dr. Kathy with a K O'Bear, O-B-E-A-R.com backslash resources. Lots of resources from doing white accountability groups that were open Zoom with Dr. Mm-hmm. Rachel Forster the summer. Plus, we're doing a white accountability group 2.0 Zoom, and a lot of the resources that I have that I just put there. One of those is suggested competencies for white allies and change agents. 
I've had it, I don't know, five or six years, 96 capacities that, that I design and anybody can use. Where are you? What capacities do you have? What do you think you need? And then design workshops, training. But those could be distilled down into something like this. You are, you are required to continue to deepen your knowledge about dynamics of race, racism, white supremacy, historical in our field and how those through lines show up in our practices, our dynamics, our culture. So knowledge awareness. Okay. You're expected to do your self work. And so you're required to recognize um, what are the racist attitudes that you may have ever learned and interrupting those so that mm. you no longer perpetuate implicit bias in comments, policies, or practices. So to do your self-work to recognize. Um, a third one is to recognize racist interpersonal aggression. Some people use the word mi microaggression. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying not to as much. Dr. Daryl okay. Sue has really publicized that, but many folk of color, particularly black, have said there's nothing micro about these moments in meetings when white people interrupt people of color over and over, discount us, always ask us for what's our data, but white people can give opinions but not have to back it up with research. I could go on and on. Yeah. So I have lists yeah. of common Okay. Unproductive meeting dynamics, common racist microaggressions. They'll see in that a packet that is like 85. Cool. It's like, and so those are the skills recognize and the skills to interrupt effectively. Mm -hmm. And then the skills to use a racism lens or a race lens. I'm now calling this last week anti-racism lens, but the most organizations maybe can't handle that. So to look at every policy, practice, program, procedure, protocol, services, products, everything. So skill up people to go, huh, by group membership, does this privilege whites? Does this meet the needs of white folks, our white clients, our white colleagues? Mm -hmm. And how might it not meet the needs of indigenous and other folk of color, maybe even create barriers to how does it perpetuate white privilege? So those asking the questions, literally every meeting, anytime you're in a planning session can help people keep it on their screen. But mm -hmm. until people especially white people get some training, they may not be able to answer those questions, but at least every organization can say, no decision will be made until you answer these questions. So that's one of the competencies, analyzing, okay. revising, and proactively yeah. using a race lens every time you're doing planning. Very um, cool. And then building effective cross-race relationships. Mm. So try to minimize dynamics of white privilege and truly learn to partner with, build alliances with, and that's just five quick ones. Um, yeah, no, I like, yeah. I like that. I like that you've, you've broken it down. There's, I'm sure more complexity to it, but that's really helpful. Yeah, I, I feel like that gives a good sense of like what some of the parts of it are like. If we add to leader expectations that leaders are expected to have a very clear capacity to talk about our organizational vision of an anti-racist organization and why the business case, leadership case, uh, to be able to mobilize people mm -hmm. to have these conversations and, mm -hmm. be, and create structures to hold people accountable for progressive, accelerated capacity, demonstrated capacity, not just knowledge, yeah. but behavior. So then leaders have extra competencies that they can be held accountable for. Huh. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm, so I'm, I'm curious, like, on, as you've been doing this, like, have you seen um 
like some some ways you would describe the cultural shift and like how the dynamic is um, different in a positive way when you are able to implement these changes? Yes, and my guess is a lot of the folks of color, indigenous folk are saying, I see these systemic changes and I see yeah. white leaders and training. <laughs> nothing is filtered down to me because you know the data. Yeah. That direct relationship with a supervisor and employee. Sure. At least the latest, that's the one. So until we mm-hmm. have teams and supervisors change their daily practices and mm-hmm. I was just talking to one senior leader that said, we created an anti-racism task force that we're partnering with the senior leaders. We're looking at the, we've identified competencies that we want. Um, We have an action plan. We're asking them to give us feedback and we are now moving to supervisory development and training. Okay. They already did some white accountability groups and some BIPOC affinity space. So they've got a clearer vision. And so, yeah. And these leaders, especially these white leaders, I worked more with the white leaders, are much able, clearer to see racist microaggressions. They're speaking up. They're challenging people that are the senior leaders of the whole huge complex organization. Um, This senior leader today told me we raised issues with all of the senior leaders. We were in a meeting and we shared with them our uh, expectations, these five capacities. And mm-hmm. they're like, we want copies. And someone said, we as a top leadership group should do a similar process. So huh. it really is white people moving through fear okay, or being with their fear and speaking mm-hmm. up, speaking out, doing, sharing what we're doing. Um, and I do believe, and I know that teams that really, especially whites that do this work while, and to be honest, Folks of color, just because your person of color does not mean you're farther along in your identity development. True. True. You can look at. Um, yeah, it's easy SCOTUS. to. Yeah. So it's easy I just to saw be something racist. else from um, Justice Thomas, I think his name is, just perpetuating. Hmm. So just because you are doesn't mean you understand, Reverend Dr. Yeah. James Washington. I first heard say that. So development and skills for folks of color and more folk of color, more indigenous folks have much more capacity and skill, but it's still, some perpetuate collusion, participate out of internalized racism. Ah. So we got here because the changes, when a team and organization really does this anti-racism work, there is thriving. People, there are more ideas, there's more innovation. When they're doing problem solving, mm-hmm. they hear more voices and don't just wait for the white person to repeat what a person of color says, right. but they really engage all ideas. Hmm. So people are more fully present. And so better solutions, better products, better ideas, retention. And then folks who are have more competencies then are seen as leaders instead of really only looking at who do I know who am I comfortable with. There's this uh, great author, Oliema Oluo, Mm -hmm. has a book that just came out called Mediocre. Okay. This idea that the system, white supremacist system, racist systems, promote white people often way past our demonstrated competence. Yeah. Over folk of color that have far more demonstrated capacity. But we have this deficit mindset that people of color are incompetent. Right. 
And so the cost of the organization to have people in jobs, white people particularly, and some folk of color possibly mm -hmm. that we hire to just keep the system going in status quo, whether that's in HR, whether that's in senior diversity jobs. Yeah. I'm not saying all are, but systems who want a status quo will find some folk of color or not let them do the work they were asked to do. All that to say, really get more competent folk in more positions because you have a much broader nice. field, white and folk of color indigenous to choose among as opposed to this yeah. very narrow idea of what competent person is or what research they have to do or to, to show that they're good. There's so yeah. much. That's really cool. Yeah, that's really good. Do you, do you feel like there are any of those that work well in um, getting buy-in from executives into like why to do this? So really working with leaders, I like to start with, so what's your passion about creating a more racially inclusive, racially mm -hmm. equitable? And I'll use that language because most organizations aren't ready for anti-racist. But if they are, then what's your passion? Mm -hmm. And um, what's your vision of it? So what will, what will be different when? So some of that aspirational. Yeah. Uh, and then the leadership case, why? So yeah. let's look at data, retention, how much, every time a person of color leaves, how much does that cost you to, mm. some, some leader, white leaders only care about money at this point. Okay, so what's mm. the financial reason? Who are, yeah. What's your field and how are you being outpaced so that folk of color or not, you say you wanna hire a more racially diverse, culturally competent mm. group of leaders and managers and employees, but you're getting outpaced by your competitors who are, farther along at dismantling mm -hmm. racism, creating anti-racist. So what's the leadership case? Why? Yeah. What we just said, retention, innovation, yeah. um, development, promotion. There's a lot of- Yeah, there's like a uh, lot of service. unmet potential that there you go. you're getting advantage of. Advantage and I'm about to, yeah, I'm sorry, you weren't done. Oh, go ahead. And I am, and many are putting their money as consumers differently. And so huh. I am more aware of how I am investing my resources when I buy things. And I think yeah. many more consumers are. So how many consumers are they losing because they are not it, out there as an anti-racist organization that's growing and developing. So getting leaders to be able to understand this, articulate it, get talking points so they can be sharing it. Um, is some of the first key work. Cause there are a yeah, lot of people good. in most organizations pockets that right. are doing good work, whether it's a supervisor or yeah. a group here that's serving whomever the organization's serving, they're doing it with a less racist and more anti-racist way. So part of it is collecting up. What are the ways we are already, who's yeah. already, how can we support and amplify them, uh, maybe compensate because most folks of <laughs> sure. color and a few whites have been doing good work mm -hmm. uncompensated on top of their other job. Whereas other white people like me just quote, did their job. It's getting everyone to realize your job includes dismantling racist practices, policies, culture, unwritten rules. Your job is about preparing services, products to serve increasingly diverse. That yeah. is your job. You know, it's, it's clear that like a lot of, decisions get made a lot of there's there's been a lot of agenda that ended up having racist connotations have you noticed that there like there there being any metrics or any systems that can be implemented that acknowledge that racism is part of the culture but 
uses like a, a way of measurement to level the playing field just through policy or is it something that really has to be addressed through culture? There are clearly hiring practices, onboarding practices that are more anti-racist than not. Hmm. There are training programs, there's anti-bias hiring committee training. So there hmm. are good, and most people face Google, they can find better ones on the internet most likely. Okay. Um, measuring it, that's where I am not at all able. And okay. to be honest, yesterday yeah. I had a conversation about hmm. measurable, um, demonstrable, how do we measure cultural competence? I colluded with um, leaders that said, well, how do you measure it? And we have to be able to measure it. And mm -hmm. I didn't know, and right. so I didn't push. Today, I say, let's just come up with the competencies and build them in. Okay. And we may learn how to measure them as we go, yeah. or we may realize that measuring actually could be used to resist could be used. Yes, today. very much so. Just like we'll put out an RFP or let's do another climate survey or let's have a really big strategic plan that we take two years to do. Mm -hmm. If you looked at all the data you have, if I don't know, it was my friend yeah. on the wall that said, you don't have to do another climate survey. Look at the data you have. <laughs> the people of color have been telling you this stuff for years, <laughs> believe yeah. them. Yeah. And to be honest, folks of color, DEI task forces, look at all those recommendations and now take action collectively. Wow. Um, and I then respect that a lot. I, I think we know a lot about what an inclusive leader looks like, a racial inclusive leader. Hmm. How do you measure it? I'm not sure there's a 360. Yeah, no, I, I, I respect that answer a lot because I feel like I, I agree with the the sentiment of what you're saying that like, you know, essentially no matter what sort of uh, system you use to measure things that if there's an issue with an internal issue within like the, the, the bias of the people set, you know, creating those systems, you're going to have the same kind of um, issues perpetuated out in the systems that those people create. And so I, I, I definitely see the value in doing it the way you're doing it, where you're, you're kind of focusing in on these skills that are going to address the issues on a cultural level at, at starting from the, from the top and working its way throughout the organization. Um, I, I, I agree. I think that that may be the most reliable way to, you know, make sure you're, you're getting your, uh, all your, all your I's dotted and T's crossed. The word iterative, mm. I-T-E-R-T-V, mm -hmm. I'm learning to use, but I guess it's continuous improvement is I think. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And so instead of waiting till we have to have it perfect, it's like, mm. could either hire some folks or develop an anti-racism, bias, bursting search committee training and yeah. process. Um, do it as good as you know it and then train folks and then learn by doing. And that would involve what are the competencies we need, anti-racism competencies we need in this person's in this position. Therefore, how do we want to market? Where will mm -hmm. we find folks that have those demonstrated capacities? What portfolio do we want them to send as part of the initial application so that they're 
telling us their demonstrated capacities, yeah. we'll interview questions. And then when people, let's do some case studies, when an interviewee says this, how do we, what, how do we ask follow-up questions so we see the demonstrated skills? Okay. All of that. I don't know anybody that's done all that yet. Yeah. The closest is probably Good Shepherds, um, Diana Noriega, AVP okay. there. It's a New York social service plus other things nonprofit. They've done some significant work. And I've now, Diana's graciously been on a couple of my radio shows and you can find all my radio shows. I think I have 30 plus now, Diana Noriega. That's as close as I found to intentional, re, really transforming the hiring and onboarding practice with very clear competencies. So I think it's the wave that's next. Yeah. And if you know people that have done it, as detailed as my materials are, mm -hmm. as well as some other folks, anti-racism skills and capacities, that I think is the future. Cool. Yeah, no, I love, I was going to ask you about what your thoughts are on the future. I'm glad you touched on it. So I feel like that's a, that's a, a good place to, to end things. Um, Ooh, can I have one more thing though? Of, of course. And, and of course we can, uh, yeah. What, what would you um, want to add in? Uh, one of my, teachers, mentors at University of Massachusetts Amherst, Dr. Mm -hmm. Barbara Love. I didn't know she was doing this when I was there. It may have been after I left, but she's talking about liberation. Hmm. And then a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Tanya Williams, has been doing lots more about liberation as well. As a, They're both women of color, black women. As a white person, I've been asking organizations, what's the vision? What will be different? I.e., what will liberation look like? What does anti-racism really look like? And so- yeah. I find not many people can engage me when I ask that, but what, how will we feel? What would be, how will people be treated? What will we be doing differently? What will the climate be? What won't we be doing? What systems will be in place? Those kind of details may help folks imagine and vision until we imagine what's possible and then mm -hmm. what competencies do we need and that we'll build it into everything we do in the line of supervision. Those I think, are some of the next steps for many organizations. Okay, we yeah. We haven't even talked about systemic <laughs> dismantling of racism. This is all inside yeah. organizations. But to be honest, if we do it in organizations, those are the folks that might join the school board. Yeah. That might get on helping someone get elected to the state representative. So yeah, that's think, the work I do. Yeah, logically, it makes a lot of sense. You know, just like you meet with the executives and work your way down, like, meeting with leaders in the community of people who are running the agencies that are willing to, you know, change the org the way the organization's culture is may <laughs> impact the rest of the society as well. <laughs> You're so big fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> it's what gives me hope. It's been at yeah. least five years of deep despair fighting yeah. daily and now a breath of, maybe creating transforming in ways differently and many folks of color say nothing nothing changed five years ago it just got more amplified and maybe into the white house and in the government but systems of white supremacy and racism have been around for centuries thank you for waking up finally white people now come partner with us because and don't tell us how to do it but listen believe us and now what can we do together and go work with your white people wow well, Dr. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. Um, if uh, there is anyone who wants to 
uh, interact with you, um, listen to the material you have. I know you mentioned the resource page. Is there anywhere else that the website you mentioned? Um, would you say the, that again? DrKathyOrBear.com is the website. Then backslash resources, lots of free open source resources. And you get to the website, you can get to webinars, radio shows, as well as some courses that I teach. And there they can also learn. There's a way to contact me if folks want to say, huh, can you say more? Or I do executive coaching, I do training, all sorts of things. Everything's virtual these days. <laughs> and I may not go back to much in person anymore. <laughs> I love virtual training. That's completely fair. Yeah, it's a much more global, uh, global marketplace anyways. Yeah. Thank you so much, Thomas. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it was good. All right, everyone. Catch you on the next one. Bye.